Welcome back, Prescription Sound Loyalists. This is episode 24, and this is Drew Duglin. But in today's show, we join special guest host Dr. Eric Topol once again as he chats to Professor Andrew Ward, a leading structural biologist at Scripps Research. Andrew's fundamental work on the coronavirus spike protein laid the very foundation for the mRNA vaccines that have now been developed against COVID-19. So without further ado, we'll jump into the discussion and find out how Andrew even got interested in first studying coronaviruses. Hello, it's Eric Topol uh, for a special Scripps Research podcast, and I'm really thrilled to have the chance to speak with Andrew Ward, a co-faculty member at Scripps Research, who is uh, a structural biologist guru and uh, a great chance to have. I learned just now that it's his first podcast, which I said is long overdue, like years overdue. So uh, Andrew, welcome, and uh, glad to have a chance to discuss uh, some of the advances that are being made uh, in conquering or the approach to the virus. That's a real pleasure to be here uh, and, a, and a real honor. You know, you know you're doing well in the scientific world if Eric Topol emails and, and asks to uh, have a conversation. So, oh, oh, you're very kind. But, you know, one of the things that struck me um, in recent weeks as we were learning about the vaccine um, was a paper that you wrote with colleagues uh, back in August 2017, uh, a, a very famous paper, which I've read. Um, that I understand was rejected five times uh, in PNAS. And uh, Jesper Pallison was the first author, and you were a co-senior author with um, Jason McClellan, Barney Graham at NIH. But clearly this had a lot to do with Scripps research. So I wonder if you could take us back uh, in time. Obviously there was no SARS-CoV-2. There was the Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory MERS virus that you were working on at that time to understand its structural biology. So. What, what was going on back then? Yeah, sure. So it's actually going to go back a little bit further than that PNAS paper. Um, it started uh, with an email from Jason. Uh, we we're both structural biologists. Uh, he was working primarily on, on RSV, uh, myself on HIV, uh, both really incorporating a lot of structural biology and uh, protein subunit design uh, via structural biology uh, for those viruses. Um, I, in particular, was using cryo-electron microscopy, which was sort of this new emerging uh, structural technique. Jason and, and others were still doing x-ray crystallography. And cryo-EM really opened up the door to look at new things or things that resisted crystallization. So Jason contacted me uh, and, and said, hey, what do you think about maybe working on coronavirus together? We could team up and, and use our, our respective expertise and, and common interests in, in vaccine development primarily. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I had a postdoc uh, who uh, was at Scripps. Uh, he wanted to move labs. He was interested in my lab. He said, I want to know something. I want to learn cryo-EM, and I'm interested in coronaviruses. So those <laughs> things happened literally in the same week. And I said, all right, did a little research myself. Uh, and, you know, Bill Gates and, and others had just formed CEPI, um, this, this <clears throat> entity to actually try to fund uh, preparedness for, you know, outbreaks like we're having right now, uh, pandemics. And so it all sort of fit together uh, really well. And Jason's relationship with Barney uh, and his long-term, long Barney Graham, that is, from, from the VRC, long-term interest in respiratory pathogens, uh, we all sort of coalesced. Um, and so, and, and, you know, very short amount of time, uh, especially given the time, 
Uh, we went from a couple conversations and emails uh, where I promised Jason uh, great success uh, to when he sent us the first constructs. And, and like you said, there wasn't SARS-CoV-2, uh, but there were SARS and MERS. And so those were the sort of templates or, or really the targets that we were looking after. Um, they didn't work. So, you know, for basic biochemical structural biology reasons, we just couldn't get them, even with cryoEM. So uh, Jason and Barney, you know, have been looking at, at a broader range of, of these beta coronaviruses. And one of them was HKU1. So that's a seasonal common cold virus. And a postdoc in Barney's lab, uh, Yadi Hassin, who's from the Middle East, came back, actually got infected with that virus. Mm -hmm. uh, Barney did his work, uh, and so it became a, a target for us. Jason, uh, you know, made the protein, sent it over, and we looked at it under the microscope and knew that it was it was going to work. Uh, so really exciting to see the first human uh, beta coronavirus spike protein. These these proteins decorate the surface of the of the virus, and they're the target for, for antibodies or vaccines. Uh, and so very quickly, uh, team in my lab, uh, Rob, led by Rob Kirchdorfer, um, uh, as well as Christopher Cottrell, uh, Jesper Pallison and, uh, and Hannah Turner actually used their respective expertise to, to get everything on the microscope, get all the, the details worked out in terms of, of data processing. Rob wrote the paper in you know, probably a week, uh, did a her, you know, Herculean effort. It ended up in nature. And so that was the, the first big splash into the coronavirus world. And really that's why, where we first saw the molecular details and could it start designing and stabilizing these spike proteins? Um, so just to, just to take a, a kind of a, a summary point where we are here, in the Nature paper, it was with a common cold coronavirus and using cryo-EM, you saw the spike protein, you could see it for the first time. Is that a simple translation? That's a simple translation. I give you the long-winded version. You know, I, okay. I'm overexcited. I'm a structural biologist, perhaps. Uh, no, but that, that's good because we're going to have some people that are not uh, anywhere close to your level of sophistication. But you know, the point being is seeing is believing. And now, what has become obviously uh, the the picture that everyone has everyone in mind about what is uh, COVID nineteen uh, is the spike protein. Um, so I think now, and th that Nature paper, what year was that published? That was the prior year, 2016. 2016, okay. And uh, now, so you already had nailed down one of the common cold um, co uh, coronaviruses. And so was this the, then the next chapter to go on to MERS? Or Absolutely. No? Oh, yeah. it, okay. so that's, so once we had that structure and, you know, for nearly everybody out there. If I showed you a picture of HKU1 versus SARS-CoV-2, you wouldn't know the difference. Right, um, right. But that, that's actually a good thing it, because it, it means that we could now go after stabilizing uh, these proteins, these spikes from other coronaviruses, uh, such as MERS and SARS. And so you can use some different tricks uh, by introducing mutations. Either you're introducing little staples, which hold things together, or uh, these prolines, now famously 2P, uh, P for proline, uh, where they actually break a spring-loaded mechanism uh, inside the, the spike protein. So if that spring is intact, it tends to sort of open up like, you know, a jack-in-the-box or mousetrap, and, and really uh, that's a mess in terms of, of biochemistry and structural biology. Uh, 
So uh, that structure, you know, unpacked in terms of, of its details allowed us to really, you know, scan through a lot of different mutations, right? You don't get lucky uh, with just one. Uh, so, you know, Jason's team uh, and, and that led by Ninchuan Wang, who was a, a postdoc, also an author on the MERS paper, um, was, was actually the one that, that nailed down the 2P, but there was a lot of brainstorming sessions on, on adding these prolines and staples and, and now there's quite a few more of those prolines and, and staples in, in some of the newer spike uh, proteins. Yeah, so in that PNAS paper um, that you, you can see where the 2P lights up, um, where it's substituted right by this uh, uh, CH portion of the spike protein, right? Or the question I have for you though is just to explain to the uninitiated, if you didn't change the 2P, that is a substitution, and you just left it as, uh, you know, different uh, amino acids. And then in the, when the virus has fusion with the host cell, right? What would happen? Um, you mentioned this spring mechanism, this change of conformation. If, if you hadn't made this proline substitution, hadn't, hadn't discovered it, what, what is the difference of what the cell sees uh, versus um, you know, having left it in its in its native state of uh, no two P proline substitution. Right. So the the prefusion confirmation, uh, which is stabilized by two P, is what it what an infectious virus has on its surface uh, and what it needs to infect a host cell. Um, if it undergoes this this conformational change and, and the spring loaded action takes place, it can no longer infect a cell. So antibodies uh, need to recognize the virus, obviously, before it gets in the cell, uh, and, and therefore why uh, arresting the, the protein in the prefusion confirmation uh, is, is really you know, critical for the, the immunogenicity. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned, you know, Jason had done a lot of work on RSVF, the spike protein for RSV. We'd been working on HIV envelope, uh, and we knew that these were the, the preferred uh, confirmations of the of the protein, and we could use these molecular and, and mutagenesis tricks to stabilize those confirmations. Okay, so basically the whole cell entry process was affected by this. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a dysfunctional virus with the two P mutations. Yeah. So now, uh, of course, now that these two large clinical trials, the most momentous clinical trials in history, uh, have shown that the uh, 2P substitution, which was used in both Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech. Uh, and I understand it's also been used uh, in a couple of the other vaccine programs, Novavax and the Janssen J&J. Yep. That it, if, if it had not been used, which was incorporated, you know, within days of the sequence uh, from, uh, from China, uh, fortunately, uh, the, the design was made quickly at NIH and Moderna uh, Barney Graham and Kizzy and a bunch of other people there, I know, but they, they put the 2P work that you had published from 2017. If they hadn't done it, what would have happened? So it's a good question. So, you know, from the data that, that the comparative data that, that's been published or, or made available, the 2P uh, was superior to the wild type. Um, and, and so, and I think it has, it's twofold. One, uh, I think you increase the, the expression levels of, of the protein. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you're stabilizing the pre-fusion confirmation, uh, which is the desirable confirmation. So it has fewer off-target 
uh, ways for the immune system to, to go off track. Uh, so I think both of those are, are likely playing a role. Um, I do think that, that SARS is, is a little bit different uh, in that you know, all of, a lot of the attention is on the receptor binding domain and that has, has less impact in this stabilization process or the, the 2P. But I think every piece of data I've seen shows that, that it's improved. Uh, and like you said, I think the interesting thing to me is, is while Moderna consulted, you know, obviously with Barney Graham and colleagues, all of the other companies actually were aware either through the, the actual uh, manuscript we had published or through a patent that had been filed. Um, and so it's pretty remarkable that all the companies that had different vaccine technologies and platform with almost no you know, additional consulting made these decisions early and that they had a, a net benefit uh, in the long run. So it's, it's quite rewarding. And I think, you know, as I tell reporters and everyone else, it's really a strong justification for how basic academic research, which is, you know, not that potentially meaningful at the time and maybe not attractive to science or nature or cell and, and, and editors uh, actually can, can be huge. And, and, you know, you see the exponential growth and, and the, the citations on those papers and, and otherwise. So it's pretty uh, fantastic. And it's interesting, um, the AstraZeneca, Oxford, University of Oxford was the one vaccine that didn't use the 2P. And it hasn't fared as well uh, as far as the 62% efficacy with the dose when they did it, the large trial. And there's this smaller group of young people, younger people who it looks like it has some promise. But, you know, it is interesting that the one outlier with a less efficacy is without the 2P. Now, Let's go back to this. Well, I, I just I, want to say that might be circumstantial. It's a completely different technology, right? Yeah. Delivering an adenovirus. So, you know, I, yeah. I'm obviously pro 2P, but I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far without actually some data behind it. Right, right. No, good point. And you know what? It'll help sort that out as a J and J, even though it's a different adenoviral vector. Uh, if it has 90 some, per, and it's a single dose in the big trial, but if it has 90 some percent efficacy, it'll potentially point it uh, uh, towards that. But yeah, you're absolutely great point, uh, Andrew. Now, let's go back to this 2017 PNAS paper. Uh, it was reported that it was rejected five times. So can you take us through that uh, kind of adventure? Misadventure? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Jason and I were relatively, you know, new in our careers. And so when you're new in your career, you want to shoot high and, and make it big impact. I think we had a lot of momentum from the HKU1 story appearing in Nature. Um, and, you know, we shopped it around to, to more than PNAS. Uh, oh, sure. Of, of higher profile. Um, and, you know, it, it's just one of those things that, you know, we obviously believe that the potential impact and, and the data was obviously solid that these mutations could actually, you know, result in an improved expression and an ability to structurally characterize so on. Um, and, and really where, where uh, you know, the heartbreak is, is for the, the students and postdocs because their careers sort of are, are, are pinned to the success of, of these papers. Um, so, you know, we went through, you know, as, as much of the ringer as they did uh, and, and tried to do as best we could. And, you know, it ended up in PNS, which is, you know, a fantastic journal and, and there's nothing wrong there. But, but obviously in retrospect, it, it should have been shot higher. But I think if you look, you know, historically, a lot of the, the great work you know, a lot of CRISPR work certainly didn't end up in uh, the, the highest profile journals uh, when, when it was being developed. So I think- Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really important point though for people that are listening uh, or, or reading this is that 
just because you have a paper rejected multiple times, don't be dejected because it might have turned out to be one of the most important and cited papers in science. But also what's noteworthy here is it, unlike the Nature paper previously on the uh, HKU common cold virus, now you actually um, were able to basically th this manipulation of the spike protein it was a much, you know, another big step forward. So it wasn't just that you could see it through cryo EM that you actually did all this elegant structural biology with this. Uh, I mean, the, this 2P thing to me, um, discovering that is actually, you know, pretty extraordinary. So I'm a little surprised, <laughs> maybe it's all retrospectoscope, that it wasn't seen as a kind of la another landmark paper. I guess you needed to see the vaccine work before you could uh, understand its importance, huh? Yeah, I mean, I you know, from from what I remember, and I can probably dig up my emails. You know, the 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 most of it is is just a form response. You know, despite what we think is is good work, you know, there's limited room in these journals. Uh, yeah. um, you know, and it, it's I think you know editors are busy, and 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 coronaviruses weren't in vogue, right? We were you know seven or eight years removed from mm -hmm. from when MERS had had been you know problematic, and and it really wasn't spreading from human to human. It wasn't you know, a, a huge concern. So, you know, a lot of other topics, uh, you know, were easier to slot into those, to those journals. Um, so what, what was it that to, to take, to get to two prolines as being the magical switch, how hard would that have been to find that versus all the other potential um, uh, substitutions? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it would be literally impossible if you did it just by going through each, you know, residue of the protein, which is over a thousand residues and mutated them to all the other ones. Um, like I said, Jason and I had taken less, we'd you know, been doing this type of work on other proteins. So we knew that prolines or these disulfide staples were, were likely to be uh, the most useful. And, and they've since you know, been used in many other you know, type of viral or, or stabilization of these proteins. Um, and then really it's the structure. Like, like I said, HKU1, showed us where these kinks in these these springs were yeah you can't put a proline right in the middle of the spring that's a problem you have to put it at one of the ends of the spring and, and ideally between two springs that are connected uh and so you know like i said you know jason had his own list of things and, and we had a list of things we had a couple of brainstorming sessions and and postdoc in in jason's lab min chuan really just made it a priority to just sample uh and so you kind of you get so far you cut it down to a, maybe a top 50 or 100, and then you <laughs> and you march through. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was originally 1P, because uh, 1P had worked in an HIV envelope. Uh, and mm. it was, well, maybe 2P will work better. And it was it was better. So, you know, you never know. And, and it takes, it's a bit of, you know, stochastic process. And also the ingenuity of of the, the researchers that are, that are doing that sampling. And then, you know, the motivated group of people that have to do all the work to validate and, and and, and show that it's it, it's actually an improvement. So yeah, you know, it's really it, pretty. It's like a treasure chest in a way. Yeah. You have to, but you had an educated, you know, which keys to try and absolutely. Pretty, yeah, pretty the structure, we, you know, we would have been we would have been lost. Yeah, uh, it's fun. That's the fun part of structural biology, which is why you know, I think most of the the people uh, in my lab and, and others do it. Right? It's visual. It's intuitive. It's 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 a puzzle, uh, and it's rewarding when you get it right. Now, Jason and uh, uh, Ning Shuang, uh, Wang, they, they were at Dartmouth at the time. They went to uh, Texas, I guess, right? Yep. Are you still keep up with them? 
Yeah, of course. Actually, I, I had a conversation with Jason uh, just last week. Uh, so yeah, Jason, uh, the reason he contacted me is, you know, Dartmouth had very little in terms of, of cryoEM resources, if any. And, you know, I was one of the few people actually using it. Uh, and, and Scripps was, you know, has been historically, you know, a leader in this field that really, you know, transformed itself in the last 10 years. Um, and, and part of the reason he went to, to Austin uh, was to actually actually have his own uh, microscope uh, uh, gotcha. to work on. So, you know, it, it actually helped launch, you know, him uh, from Dartmouth uh, and, and into a place where, you know, and so now we're, we're you know, more collegial than, uh, than, than collaborating. Uh, we just actually are finishing, we, as a product of, of our success, we, we received an R01 grant. Uh, and oh. we're just coming to the close of that right now and, and reflecting on, you know, you have to file these progress reports. And I think, Jay, as Jason said, it's going to be one of the most uh, successful progress reports for an R01. Uh, <laughs> In history. That, that coincidentally is timed with, with this. So, uh, you know, I, I think, and, and you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it's almost no room for renewal uh, of the project because, it, it, you know, we sort of accomplished what we set out to do. That's um, amazing. Oh, you know, and also uh, I got to meet Jason, um, there was a PBS nice, really educational video. You probably have seen it that was made in his his lab uh, about this. And so um, it, it's another really good thing, ancillary thing that we'll we'll put with the podcast. Yeah. Now, one of the things that um, before transitioning to the, the the variant of the moment, if you could reflect to me, uh, and not just because Scripps Research and you are so into structural biology, but what I've been observing since the beginning of the pandemic is this is like a, a, a heyday of structural biology. That is every atom of the virus and the vaccines and the neutralizing antibodies are look, being looked at in 3D. And it seems to be something, you know, when you think about 1918, there was no anything. And here, uh, this is exquisite science. Can you give us your perspective about how structural biology is changing the pandemic? Yeah, so I mean, as you just said, you know, every detail, including a lot of the internal proteins and the non-structural proteins that are targets for small molecule drugs, um, are, are accessible to structural biology, in large part due to, to cryoEM becoming, you know, a real pedestrian tool mm -hmm. available at many, you know, institutes now worldwide. Um, and I think really it's, it's also a reflection of the quality of scientists that are out there. So a lot of people that are working on coronavirus now never dreamed of working on coronavirus, uh, but were shut down and could only keep their lab open uh, if they worked on coronavirus. Um, so it really shows you the quality of research that's being done in other areas that, that may not be so hot. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it's a call to arms at the global level and, you know, you know in, in some ways a gold rush, uh, but I think it, it is that because it's accessible to the, the it's pictures, it's, it's intuitive things. And a lot of it is is can be incorporated now. You know, I think I'm, I'm optimistic that that 2P was good enough, and you know we're going to have some pretty high quality vaccines here and, and be over this pandemic, um, or or at least be able to weather the storm. But I think a lot of the lessons and and work that's ongoing now has will pay future dividends, not only for you know a potential new coronavirus, but but other viruses as well. Um, and I think it's also as you as you alluded to. You know, sh shown a light on on the value of of structural biology, uh, and in particular, being able to do it in, in high throughput and and high quality. So I think there's going to be more emphasis at institutes and other places, maybe at the NIH, that 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 says, you know, we really want to be able to to turn the knob up to 11, 
uh, on all of our microscopes and, and beam lines in order to, to actually do this type of work in, in nearly real time, which is the impressive part. Yeah, I mean, I just can't get over it. I've been so awestruck uh, by reading the papers. I mean, some several of the most extraordinary papers are coming out of your lab. Uh, like, um, you know, the, the work that was done to, to on the structural biology of the Novavax vaccine um, on the monoclonal antibodies. Uh, I mean, it's just so much, it, it's, it's remarkable, the pace of it. I mean, I communicate with Holden Thorpe, the editor of, uh, of Science, about, you know, where a lot of these papers have been published, no less in Nature and Cell and other places, that this is, to me, a differentiating feature on the pandemic. Obviously, we've had epidemiology and immunology, virology, but this is the one thing of science that is just, to me, it just kind of blown me away. So you picked a very good path in your career, Andrew, I got to say. Now, with the new the new variant that was kind of got very hot over the weekend um, is this B117 out of the UK, and they're closing down every which way of uh, transport out of the UK because they're so worried that this hypertransmission estimated to be 60, 70% higher than the, uh, the D614G, uh, the, the dominant pandemic uh, strain, if you will. Now, in South Africa, um, around the same time, uh, and just published today by preprint, there is this other uh, high transmission uh, variant this uh, N501Y. Uh, there are other mutations in that, in the receptor binding domain, but that seems to be the one that is the uh, culprit. And this one in the UK, wherever it began, which has some 17 to 20, whatever mutations, also has that uh, N501Y. So can you give us your sense, what is going on here? Um, there's also this issue about, was this variant multiple multivariants that all have potential structural implications was basically in a chronically infected immunocompromised person so it was a host virus interaction not just the virus under selection pressure so what is going on here <laughs> yeah, great point so you know just to start you know viruses mutate uh yep. and typically a random process. Uh, if you put them under selection pressure, either you know by changing the environment they have to live in or because there's antibodies around, uh, then they sample randomly. Uh, most of the sampling they do is, is non-productive. Uh, and sometimes it, it, it's a winner, just like in any evolutionary process. Um, I think really what you're seeing here is, is it's the magnitude of the outbreak, right? So when the test tube is small, there's not a lot of sampling. When the test tube is huge, which is what happened as this has really exploded in different communities, then the likelihood of, of com randomly coming across an advantageous mutation in terms of binding the receptor or getting in cells is, is, is more likely. Uh, and again, if you just, you know, the beautiful thing is every time somebody reports a structure or reports a mutation, uh, you know, the first thing we do is translate it from nucleotide space, uh, which I can't read, to protein space. Uh, <laughs> Luckily, that's an, that's an easy transformation. And then we just go to our structure and look and say, does it make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I, I did this, you know, I got about 10 emails as soon as this, this variant was released, immediately looked at the structure. And, and you know, the cool thing is, the way I like to describe it is uh, the, the, current, you know, the, the current version of the virus or the circulating uh, binds the receptor and they kind of come together like this, but there's like little you know, details in there. And so the, the ACE2 receptor has this tyrosine that comes out like this. 
Uh, and, and right now the, there's a little valine or, or, or aspartic acid that's sitting like this. But what the virus did is it inserted another tyrosine like this, and it's like a perfect high five. So, you know, it's just more complementary lock and key type of thing. And, you know, of course, that will need to be validated. But just looking at it, it makes a lot of sense that that would be advantageous in terms of binding the receptor and giving this sort of molecular high five to, to keep it there. Now, could that be the key that's just driving um, this? Because, you know, during the first year, essentially, there was not really much uh is very slow evolution of of significance obviously there were a lot of variants but the only one that seemed to have some mild transmission increase was the uh, d614g this one obviously is kind of taking it to another level could it just be that 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 high five uh that you just described so aptly could that be what is the common thread of what's going on in both south africa and the uk and now which is starting to appear in some other countries it, it could very well be. I, I think that the epi, epidemiology will, will bear that out. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't seem to be a, a disadvantage for the virus. Uh, so, so that's somewhat of, of a concern. Um, and here again is where I think you know, it's not just a vaccine that's gonna solve the problem, it's public health measures, slowing transmission. The good news is, is the vaccine and many of the monoclonal antibodies being developed are, are unlikely to be affected by this single mutation um, it, but it may, it may play a role in, in the transmission and, and spread before we get to, you know, really vaccinating 90% of, of the population. And, and what about these other 20 variants and deletions and all the other things in this B117? Does that worry you regarding um, resistance to antibodies or vaccine resistance? Uh, so I, I don't think, you know, we've mapped a lot of these and, and we're yeah. looking at them and, and they fall in really interesting areas one of which we identified in the Novavax paper, you know, as, as potentially interesting, you know, we didn't have enough data, but many of them are, are sort of in that region now. Uh, the, the good news is, you know, th these viruses, um, you know, in, in a monoclonal therapy, you have one antibody, one chance to really cull the entire viral herd. In a vaccine, because you're, you're immunizing with the full spike protein, you have multiple antibodies hitting multiple sites. And viruses can't escape by making, you know, 10 or 20 changes at once. Um, so I, th I think it, it's not going to be a big problem uh, as long as it, it doesn't drift too far. The good news is if it is a problem, uh, and I guarantee you companies are already thinking this way, they can put those mutations very rapidly in the next generation wow. of the vaccine right. uh, and, and we can get ahead of it. So it really highlights Again, you know, another important aspect of, of the science of the epidemic is, is tracking viruses and, and the molecular epidemiology that's happening so we know where it's going uh, and, and kind of create checkpoint uh, antibodies or, or vaccines in the future. Yeah, I was just thinking instead of the 2P um, that was inserted, uh, the 2022 version of the vaccine, our booster shots, may have something to to address this because it looks like with this type of evolution of the virus, no matter how it occurred, uh, we're not gonna have uh, one vaccine that's gonna last us for the next several years, I'm guessing. Is that, is that what you would surmise? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think the surface is changing enough, right? 2P is at the heart of the protein, right? That's, that's always probably gonna be there. Uh, 
and it's and it's really untouchable by antibodies. So there's no way to it really, you know, escape from from or do anything to that. But the surface is is going to change, uh, and and you know, with, especially with RNA-based vaccines and how rapidly they can move, it, it's relatively trivial to incorporate those in. And I think you know, really, where people are thinking next is using predictive tools as well as looking at related beta coronaviruses and saying how can we create vaccines that. Are, are sort of preparedness vaccines where they're going to hit the things that are in bats and civets mm -hmm. and, and other, you know, maybe minks uh, and other zoonotic reservoirs uh, that might be a problem. And which is exactly what, you know, really happens in influenza where a lot of the, the research done in the field is to, to understand and predict what, what could be pandemic based on what's circulating in chicken or swine or, or what have you. Well, um, so structural biology applied to structure-based vaccine design um, is extraordinary. And uh, I guess, you know, just in wrapping it up, Andrew, what a, it's so impressive to see uh, the kind of impact this can have uh, on humankind. I mean, this is a big effing deal here. And so uh, just to thank you for explaining this to everybody, uh, your continued uh, uh, phenomenal momentum here I mean, it's hard to hard to do better than what you all have been doing in recent months. And you're, so the, the, who would ever have guessed back in 2016 when you published that first cry OEM of a coronavirus where it would lead you and your collaborators. And so thanks for all that effort and uh, wishing you continued success. And I feel so lucky to have you as a colleague here at Script Research. Well, I mean, that's that's just fantastic feedback. And that's, you know, you know, I'd like to also say, you know, I'm just the, the, the figurehead here. You know, it, it really is the people in the lab uh, that are sweating it out, grinding it out. They're in the lab with masks on and, and you know, social distancing and, and putting up with, with that. So, you know, I'd really like to acknowledge that all the scientists, not just in my own lab, but, but I think the, a big thanks to the scientific community uh, for coming together and, and, and doing this work. I just, you know, with a lot of luck and, and a little bit of... Uh, maybe insight and foresight, I ended up where I, where I did and, and here uh, talking to you today. You, you certainly were in a hot area. Now, one thing just to note is that, as you say, the people working who have helped make this pandemic uh, come up with an exit strategy are also working day in and day out in the labs, as you say, with some distancing and masks and, you know, not just as growth research, but all around the country to, to keep keep on this path of you know staying ahead of the virus and and future pathogens to come so yeah I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know while many of us are working from home uh there's so many that are in the labs just you know really doing extraordinary work non-stop so thank you all right well uh, i look forward to the next chance we can do a podcast together i know there will be some in the future and Andrew, thanks so much. I let you get back to work because we need you to do that. We need you to keep envisioning in 3D how to, how to prevail over the pandemic. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. Take care. Well, that wraps it up, listeners, and some crucial insights there on what the SARS-CoV-2 mutations might mean and how the vaccine landscape will continue to evolve to counter them and hopefully put an end to the pandemic. A huge thank you to our guests, Eric Topol and Andrew Ward today. If you want to learn more, in the show notes, you'll find some more handy resources illustrating how these vaccines are made, including our very own Science Simplified series. Remember to subscribe to the podcast for more interviews on a variety of topics, and make sure to follow Scripps Research on social media for all our latest updates. Until next time, stay healthy and stay positive as we approach the new year. Take care.